Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Many of the world's most stunning places are at high altitude, and the challenge to get to see these beautiful places is dealing with the physical and mental effects of being in these oxygen-deprived zones. This week on the podcast, we have an expert on high-altitude travel with James Barber from the Altitude Centre in London on the podcast. Hi, James. Welcome to the podcast. Richard, hi. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to have you on because altitude is one of those things that it's surprisingly impactful and uh, I've seen people being like strapped onto yaks, carried out of the high Himalaya and heard horror stories and know people have had to be evac'd. And so it's a really serious issue. Before we dig into that, um, you, you're a performance specialist at the Altitude Center. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my job title, yeah, lead performance specialist at the Altitude Center, it pretty much means looking after anything sort of high performance. So we're talking obviously today about trekking to high altitude, um, working with a lot of people who are going up to, you know, big 8,000 meter mountains, all the way up to sort of K2, Everest, those sorts of things. Um, and then there's a sports performance angle as well. So a lot of people will think of altitude training for triathletes, mount, um, cyclists, runners, those sorts of people. Um, so there's a, an element to it there as well. And, and talking to the Premier League football clubs. So it's pretty diverse. You know, obviously we're talking about it today from a mountaineering perspective. Um, but so many different people are using altitude training and it's kind of looking after all of those different people. And the altitude center where you work, all you guys focus on is, is altitude training. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's been the core of it. So, um, we have on site, um, you know, an altitude chamber that people will go in and train at. So they'll train at, uh, 2,700 meters, kind of 9,000 feet, that sort of height. Um, but we can simulate much higher altitudes as well with, with a couple of different modalities um, but then of course everybody who is going to the high altitude or is you know trying to run a marathon or whatever they need good training plans they need strength and conditioning as well so we do everything to kind of support people um you know in their in their holistic preparation for these sorts of challenges so altitudes are a really big issue for amateurs and and what we see is a lot of people who are doing their first trek in the himalayas or the andes they're really worried about altitude. They don't really know how to prepare, but can you maybe just share the basics of why altitude matters and what it does to the human body for somebody who's not trying to climb K2, they just maybe want to go to K2 base camp. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's a massive, uh, it's a massive challenge. And I think a lot of people would find provided that they're, you know, reasonably fit then for a lot of these treks, it is the altitude that makes these things a, a big challenge. Um, and that's because as you go higher up in the atmosphere, there's less oxygen available to you. So the, the concentration of oxygen, the percentage of oxygen in the air stays the same, but the air is much thinner. Um, so it's as though you're breathing less air with each breath. Less air means less oxygen going into the body. And um, when your body is deprived of oxygen, it really doesn't like that in particular, the brain, um, but also the muscles being deprived of oxygen. It just makes everything far harder, um, you know, at the sort of lower altitudes. And then as you start ascending, if people aren't dealing well with the altitude, then, you know, I'm sure you've been there, as you say, in the high Himalayas, you know, starting to feel breathless, even at rest, you know, maybe having, not being able to catch your breath at rest, um, headaches, those sort of symptoms, nausea coming in. And then when people are dealing with, you know, more severe types of altitude sickness, 
you know, actually unable to coordinate um, and then potentially getting quite serious from there. And I think, you know, the the things that are challenging for people often are that actually altitude can start to affect people from relatively low heights. Um, you know, you start a Kilimanjaro trek and you're starting at about 2,000 meters. You fly into Lukla and you're almost straight away at 3,000 meters. And that's a challenge, you know, right from the very off. Um, and it doesn't really matter how fit you are. You know, it can get very fit people and very unfit people alike. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of um, you know success or or failure on these treks is is down to the effects of altitude. So when you're working with clients, what are some basics you start to do to try and prepare them for uh, going to high altitude? I guess if you think of altitude as being a stress on the body, if we dose stress in the right way then we can get an adaptation to it so what we're trying to do is expose people to high altitude for a short period of time before they go just embarrass the body slightly make it think i don't like this i'm going to adapt and start to kick in with what we consider to be acclimatization before they actually get to the mountains so a couple of different ways of doing that but it all revolves around breathing air that doesn't have much oxygen in it so right now just under 21% of the air that you and I are breathing is oxygen. We have generators that people train with here or people rent to have at home, uh, which remove some of the oxygen from that air. So down 15, 14, 13, down to as low as nine and a half percent oxygen, which is about six and a half thousand meters equivalent. Um, and people will either kind of breathe that air just passively. So while they're sitting, you know, working, literally we've got people working from home, breathing high altitude air at the moment. Or they'll come into the center or maybe at home if they've got exercise equipment and, you know, be walking, box stepping, those sorts of low intensity, but trek specific activities, but doing it at, again, three, four, five thousand meters of altitude. So it's all about getting that exposure before you head off to the high mountains. I've seen videos of people where they have kind of like a little plastic room uh, that they sleep in. I haven't seen people working in it, but is this, this the type of thing you can do at home that you have like a little, a little room you're in? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, we've had people do that. So they're designed, I guess, for something slightly different, often for people to sleep in. So if you imagine a tent that goes over your bed that you then hook this generator up to, and it feeds in this hypoxic low oxygen air, um, but yeah, for sure, we've had people set those up and set up little desks in there. And spend you know seven eight hours a day at high altitude because it ultimately it's a it's a dose response relationship. The more time they spend at altitude before they go, the greater the response they get. So yeah, for sure, people will, will set that up. Yeah. So there's lots of people who you know listening aren't in London, uh, don't have access to you know one of these chambers. Are there things just regular people can do to prepare to go to altitude? Yeah, I think you have to break it down and and look at what are the challenges here. And obviously what we're talking about is, is specifically that altitude side of things. And preparing for altitude requires exposure to those hypoxic conditions. So really the only way to prepare for altitude is to have that exposure. There are, um, you know, people can have the equipment at home, you know, in the, in the States, there are sensors um, that, that kind of cater with that. Our partners, Hypoxico, and kind of deal with the, with the states as well, kind of from an equipment point of view, so people can do that. It's something that I think actually is far more accessible than people realize, um, is, is the honest answer. 
Um, but if it's something that isn't possible at all, then you have to look at what are the other factors and start thinking, well, okay, I need to make sure that I'm as fit as I possibly can be so that doing the trekking isn't, isn't a challenge, doing the walking itself isn't a challenge, and my body can just focus on, on the altitude. Um, but really to get that response, to get that acclimatization, we need to be spending a bit of time in low oxygen environments before going off to the mountains. So um, once a person is in country, you know, so if, if someone does this altitude training, you know, at home, at sea level, you know, at, you know, a regular city in North America, does that mean they can ascend more quickly once they land so they can fly into Lukla and just race up the mountain? Or do you still recommend kind of this standard every kind of 500 meters, just take a rest day and, and go slow as you go high? Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a replacement for a, for a good um, itinerary, a sensible itinerary. Um, and that's one of the things that we'll always stress is you still have to really look after yourself when you're there. You still have to make sure that you're hydrated, you know, three or four liters of water a day, um, you know, walking as slowly as you can. You might want to take those rest days still every kind of 500 or, or every time you go over a 1000 meter boundary, something like that. So for, for most people, it's it's about a pre-acclimatization and making the first couple of days as, as, as comfortable as possible, improving sleep quality so that they can continue to acclimatize and be comfortable when they're on the mountain um, and going from there. For sure, what we are seeing now with people, you know, with less and less time, but wanting to do higher and higher stuff is cut time off their trips. Um, so, you know, we have had people spend five or six months uh, training with us or at home, you know, every single day and climb big mountains very quickly. Last season, we had someone who um, uh, climbed Manaslu, he was only on the mountain for nine days. We had someone on last year's Everest season go from Heathrow to Everest and Lotsey and back again in 17 days. So for sure, it, it can work like that. But for, for someone who's trekking to, to a base camp or, or to, you know, to Kilimanjaro, those sorts of things, it's not, it's not a replacement, but it can just make things a bit more comfortable. In doing this altitude training at home or you know, at, a, at a gym-like altitude uh, or training center-like altitude, how quickly do you lose that you know, ability to, to work at altitude? Like, is it something that if you stop in three days, you're kind of, you've lost all the training you've done? Or does it have this you know, half-life that, that goes on? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's 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 the most common question that, that we get. People want to know how how the travel is going to affect them, and what we see from from our own data and from the research as well is that it it definitely spans that travel time. So what they'll do quite a lot of the time in the research is they'll put people through acclimatization protocols, wait five days where they have no access to altitude to simulate that travel, and then test them again. And we know that it all lasts um, you know pretty well across that time. I think the things really that, that are important to remember are that like anything, you know, like strength or endurance or whatever, the more of it you have in the first place, the greater the retention is. So if you're acclimatizing to a really high level, even if a bit of it drops off after 10 days, you're still going to be acclimatized to a pretty good level. Um, and then the other thing is that we have a hypoxic memory and we don't quite understand exactly how that happens just yet. But one of the things that happens is when you've had this type of training and you get the acclimatization, even if some of it goes away, it comes back more quickly than you gained it in the, in the first place. So when you're then re-exposed to that altitude on the mountain, your body kind of kicks in and goes, oh, I've seen this before. I know what to do. Let's kick in and do it. So yeah, it's a, it's a little bit individual, but a couple of things to just think about there. 
It's funny you mentioned this because uh, I, I once trekked with a guy from Colorado and he claimed his ability to acclimatize was because he'd go do like the weekends leading up to his trek. He'd go to a bunch of 14,000ers and try and like like get out there Friday night and sleep as high as he can for two nights. And uh, he said it kind of sucked because you're going to go from Denver and go up quick. But he claimed that was his, you know, one of his keys to like not getting altitude sickness. And it sounds like what you're saying is there's probably some truth in that, that doing, you know, living in Denver and then going up high the weekends before he got a head start and the rest of us that were coming kind of from, you know, sea level to a thousand meters. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, if you could spend even more time up there, then it would have been even more of a response. But yeah, that kind of altitude is certainly enough to... Uh, to trigger a response like that. And if he's doing it frequently enough, then yeah, for sure, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And you mentioned the sleep specifically. And I think that's one of the ways that a lot of people who have been to altitude will find that it affects them is, is actually an inability to sleep well at altitude. So if he was able to go up there, sleep high and actually get a good night's sleep, when you're then actually you know going to higher altitudes, if you can sleep well, you can recover well, you can get yourself ready for the next day. So um, yeah, interesting that you mentioned that specifically, the sleeping as high as you can. And so I have a question also about altitude, just kind of in, in general. Um, so can you lose the ability to go to high altitude? And I asked this, uh, I know someone who was medievaced from uh, the Himalayas, and then he was in Morocco, just at kind of like 3,800 meters, and he had, you know, almost to be evaced and had a really negative reaction. And and his kind of view is he just can't go to high, high altitude anymore. It, is that, you know, is that true that the body just at some point can't adjust to high, high altitude? Or is it a case of he would be somebody who would really benefit from this type of, uh, of training? I think what we'd actually look to do even before that is understand why that's happened. Um, so there might be a little bit of context around that, you know, has he tried to ascend really quickly? You know, has he not hydrated enough? Those sorts of factors that, you know, relate to how you're managing yourself when you're there. Um, you know, sometimes we see that people have gone to high altitude and they've had a bit of a hard time because of those kind of contextual factors, or actually, is it because inherently he's just doesn't deal with the altitude that well. So we do some testing around that. So actually what we can start to do is with some, uh, you know, short exposures to very high altitudes while someone's walking on a treadmill is is really understand what the response is. You know, if we track a couple of metrics while someone's doing a short test at, you know, 5,000 meters, then we can go, actually, you deal with the altitude really poorly. And so innately, that's why that's happening. Or we might look at the test results and go, look, you actually deal with the altitude pretty well. And it was those contextual factors that might have shot you in the foot. So let's sit down. Let's work out why that happened in the first place. Um, but yeah, from from there and understanding why that's happened, it's definitely something that, um, uh, you know, that can then be worked on. I don't, uh, the, the, body is, the body is amazing and it will respond to the stress that you place on it. So provided that we, we dose that stress correctly, then yeah, I don't see why um, why it wouldn't be possible to elicit that adaptation and and improve the the response. Uh, another question, I love I love being able to ask all my altitude questions. I've always wondered. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say they don't feel the altitude affects them as much in the Andes as you know the Himalayas. And I don't know if this is you know I've heard it enough that it's like. Is there something here that different mountain ranges, maybe the different plants or, you know, maybe the different food or water, is there something that makes altitude different in different places? Yeah, a couple of, a couple of factors. It's, it's, it's often quite a small effect, but it is something that people note. Um, and the two factors that come into that are how equatorial you are, because that, that dictates how far away you are from the Earth's core. 
and how high up you actually are relative to the rest of the atmosphere. So because the Earth is not perfectly circular, if you're at a point near the equator where you're further away from the core of the Earth, then you're at a kind of a higher relative altitude slightly, even though you might be at a lower absolute altitude, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It interacts slightly there. Um, and then the other thing is sometimes weather conditions. So um, extreme cold, and if you have low pressure environments at the top of these mountains as you do in the cold um then you're likely to to find that the altitude you know the 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 altitude that you're at behaves like a slightly higher altitude so if you've got people going to um you know denali where it's extremely cold then then sometimes they might find that they're affected more by the altitude than they would be you know even at the same height um somewhere else um and we wrote a little bit about this on uh, when they did the k2 winter you know part of the challenge of that was actually you know k2 is a savage mountain as it is but in the winter actually the weather systems mean that the air pressure is even lower and the air that you're breathing is even thinner so there's definitely something there's definitely something in that yeah so when people are you know let's say they're going to go do a Kili or they're going to go you know one of the treks in nepal what are your recommendations for how fast they ascend in terms of uh, elevation gain? Classically, you know, you'd say kind of three, four hundred meters a day. But the honest answer is that for most people, those itineraries are set, and we then have to work to that. So they've, you know, realistically, I think I think this would be the case for for most of most of the listeners is you know they go, okay, I've got ten days to go climb this mountain. It's going to take me a day to get there and a day to get back. That gives me eight days. That means I'm going to be up in six and a half days and back down in one and a half days. So there we go. There's my six and a half day itinerary. So I think we almost have to look at it from the the other way around in a practical sense. And we go, look, you know, we've had, as I said before, you know, people come to us and go, look, I've got a week and I'm going to go and climb Killy. And that means I've got to be up in four days. And we go, okay, well, look, we need to be really aggressive with with your acclimatization plans. So I think it's one where... With all the recommendations we can give, realistically, we need we kind of look at it the other way around and say, look, what do you want to, to try and achieve and how can how can we then facilitate that? And and what would be a training plan for someone that is like that? Because, you know, we have lots of people at 10 Adventures that they're always, can we take two days off the Everest Base Camp? Can we do it? Can we do Killy in seven days? Uh, and the local guides always, you know, push back and say, well, this is, you can try it, but in most cases, it means you don't, you don't complete your objective. So I'm really interested in, how much time do people have to put in beforehand to be able to go faster in the mountain? Yeah, particularly for base camp because it's, it's such a long trek for for people to, to undertake, right? So ultimately, as I said, look, the more time that is spent at altitude before you go, the greater that response is going to be. Generally, you know, for most people, we're not talking we're not talking huge amounts of time for something like Everest Base Camp, Kilimanjaro. Often, between ten and twenty hours worth of exposure is is good. Um, and that can come from, you know, a combination of kind of just passive exposures, just sitting, uh, breathing very high altitude air, active exposures. So walking, box stepping, those sorts of things, again, it's sort of three, four, 5,000 meters, but it's quite individual. So what we look to do for most people is to get an understanding of what their baseline, uh, tolerance to altitude is go through a bit of a testing process and then say, look, you know, you naturally deal well with the altitude and you want to do something quickly eight, nine, 10 hours of training would be, would be good. Or we can go on the flip side of that. Look, we've done the testing. You naturally perform really poorly at altitude and you want to do this thing really quickly. We want to throw absolutely everything at you on that front, you know, 20, 25, 30 hours of of training. 
And so is that training, is that like an hour a day, five days a week, or is it done like in bigger blocks? Yeah, again, um, very much about fitting with with what's reasonable. Most people will find that actually if they can do an hour, you know, when they're visiting the centers, is you know, sometimes time consuming for people. So we generally say, look, if you can do kind of two or three visits a week and maybe do two types of training while you're here, so you get two hours of training in total, and do that for four to six weeks. For a lot of people, that would be that would be good preparation. But that's where then sometimes when people have uh, equipment at home, you're not limited on travel, on time, and that sort of thing. So people can literally sit there for 90 minutes, two hours a day, while they're tapping away doing emails or whatever at the moment, just breathing high altitude air. And, and that's where we see the best the best results is when people really commit to it and get as much time as possible. And, and you mentioned testing. What is, you know, how do you, is this, you know, blood test? Is it like a VO2 max test or, or how do you actually assess how people are, are interacting with, uh, with altitude? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's a few things. I mean, before we even look at the altitude, we want to get a bit of an understanding of the person. Um, so we want to have a look at some things like the blood pressure, um, which tends to be elevated slightly at altitude, um, just to understand if there's anything underlying there. We'll have a look at things like lung function, carbon dioxide tolerance, those sorts of things, which are quite straightforward tests to, to, for us to perform, but really important. Um, and then we'll go through a whole battery of tests and it depends what someone's trying to do. So at its core, what we're trying to do is expose someone to high altitude and see what happens to their blood oxygen saturation. Pretty much. We can do a couple of tests there then, um, just passively while people are just sitting, breathing high altitude air. And that gives us a bit of an initial indication as to their tolerance or susceptibility. We'll then start uh, walking people on a treadmill you know, pretty low speed, bit of incline, replicating what they're going to be doing while they're up there. And again, track the, the physiological response to that. And then for people going, uh, you know, people people who either want a little bit more insight into how they respond or people who are going and doing something maybe a bit more technical, then we can also get people doing um, some cognitive tasks, you know, decision-making, how quickly can you make a decision? How accurately can you make that decision? Again, while you're at high altitude, and uh, you know, compare their results against the scientific literature and against our own database, and then say, look, you know, you you respond really well in this way, but actually at these altitudes you're not so good. So let's let's guide your training towards that, or, or you know, whatever whatever the um, the result is from there, build a build a plan accordingly. It's interesting you mentioned the cognitive functions because I know even just I do Peloton, and uh, I just do a bunch of math when I'm on Peloton. I don't know why I just. You know, I, I count how many people are on there and I try and predict, okay, when this is over, how many people will be will be left and try and do the math of how many people are joining. And uh, when I'm doing a really hard uh, workout, I'm like, my math, I lose my math. And it sounds like with elevation as well, you lose the ability to do, you know, cognitive, you know, basic kind of cognitive function. But, but how severe is that for people uh, as they ascend? I mean, it can be really severe, particularly at the very high altitudes. Um, you know, I mean, we've there's a, a guide um, that we've done some work with who came down from Everest and said, you know, he was on just below the Hillary step and came across someone who, you know, had um, started taking their taking their summit suits off because they were convinced that they were really hot. They couldn't process that they were they were, they were in the death zone and they were really cold, so they started trying to take their summit suits off. You hear of people coming down from from the summit having been successful getting back to you know camp four camp three and they look at their hands and they go hold on these aren't my gloves and then when they get down they put it together and actually they've taken their gloves off 
for unknown reasons because they think that's the right thing to do at the time and then someone else has given them gloves or, or whatever's happened there and it's, it's so all sorts of kind of weird stuff like that at the really high altitudes but you know i think for for most people what we're looking at is um an ability to make decisions with slightly more technical things so that's where maybe someone's going and climbing for us in the alps um you know they're going to the matterhorn they need to make sure that they can be very accurate in the placement of their ropes or, or whatever it is, you know, clipping in, clipping out, all of these sorts of things, um, and make the right decisions at the right times. So for those sorts of altitudes, for most people, it's not a huge effect, but enough to be noticeable. But when you're getting really high, people start doing all sorts of bizarre things. That sounds scary when you think of that, that, you know, what are people doing now? Uh, where most people are trekking, they're not going to be dealing with this extreme. You know, people aren't going to be taking off their coats and their shirts at, at EBC unless it's, you know, beautiful weather <laughs> and they want kind of some sort of weird selfie. Yeah. But uh, you also, you know, I, or I've heard a lot about uh, like Tour de France riders, they train at elevation uh, and they use it for performance. And I've always wondered, how does that work? And, you know, in terms of training, training at elevation, they don't seem to go that high. Like they seem to go to the grand canaria or they're you know up in the pyrenees which is only like two thousand meters but can you maybe explain about training at elevation just to improve your fitness absolutely yeah it's it's classically how a lot of people think of altitude training is is from that sort of side of things so what they'll often do is they'll go as you say somewhere like grand canaria tenerife those sorts of places and they'll go to between about two thousand meters but they'll be there for a long time and that's the key thing. So they'll be there for three, four, five weeks at a time. And there's two things that factor into your response to altitude, the altitude itself and the amount of time to which you're exposed to it. And because they're not going quite as high, they can be there for a really long period of time. And that's when they start getting the adaptations to that. The reason they don't go quite so high is because they still need to be able to train. If you imagine I took you to 5,000 meters and then suddenly asked you to go and either do like a six hour bike ride or suddenly do some intervals on the bike, you'd be really unhappy with me so fast. Like you just wouldn't be able to train and they still need to be able to train to get fit. Um, so that's why they don't go quite so high. Uh, but when they're there for that amount of time, the amount of oxygen in their blood drops ever so slightly. That's picked up by um, the kidneys. Basically, there's a particular type of sensor in the kidney, which senses that they don't have much oxygen in their blood. And that causes the kidney to release a hormone called EPO, erythropoietin which travels to uh, the bone marrow, it tells these specific types of cell in the bone marrow, hey, we need more oxygen in the blood, you're going to become red blood cells, because that's how we carry oxygen. If we have more red blood cells, we can carry more oxygen in the in the blood. You then start getting this uh, production of red blood cells. So you've got more oxygen in the blood, which is a good thing. Um, and it's all about that supply of oxygen from the air to the muscles and to the brain. That's the that's the key thing, really, from their point of view, from the fitness side of things. So it sounds like we all need to go to Colorado for a few months this summer and go cycling or hiking. A good excuse to to have a holiday. Hundred percent. I mean, that's the reason why so many people are based out of Boulder, right? You know, it's at a good altitude and uh, people can train effectively there, and that's why it's become this hub um, for uh, for endurance athletes. Uh, James, this has been incredible to get all this information and all my questions I've always wondered while I've been in these places, uh, I finally have answers for them. So I just want to say thanks for coming on the show and sharing all your knowledge. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much for your time. 
And if people want to find out more about the Altitude Center, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're across um, social media, mostly on Instagram and Facebook, um, just the Altitude Center or at Altitude Center, um, or our website is altitudecenter.com. Uh, excellent. And I'll put links to those in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures.